Our Father, we are uh, on a journey. We are pilgrims headed home. We, we uh, for many of us, for a long time, labored under the misconception that this is our home, but it isn't. This is temporary. Uh, this is preparation. But you said in John 14, and we're thankful, Lord, that you said this, that you were up to something, and the disciples were so worried about their immediate circumstances when they heard you say that you were going to be leaving them, and their hearts were immediately troubled, deeply troubled. They did not see that one coming. But you said to them, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you unto myself. Um, They were thinking about their immediate circumstances, what they were going to do in the short term. And you addressed their trouble by giving them an invitation to look at the long term. And the point being made there was, if you have our eternity taken care of, then we can trust you for our short term as well. You've got us covered, Lord, from the womb to the tomb. The psalmist said that you are the God who will guide us until death. Uh, We know from your word that each man has an appointed number of days upon this earth. There are boundaries you have marked for each of us. Our lifespan is determined before we are even born. Uh, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, David said. And in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Uh, One of the days that you have marked out for us is the day of our death. We don't know when that is coming. Uh, We speculate at times, and we assume, and we presume. Uh, There are guys in this room who have been in hospital beds and told by doctors that they wouldn't last X amount of weeks. And that was years ago. And here they are. Uh, We see young men taken early, and it grieves us and it breaks our heart. But these are things that we do not know, but they are things that you know. Moses said in Psalm 90, for the days of our lives they contain 70 or if due to strength, 80 years. Soon they are gone and we fly away. And then he went on to say, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We don't know the time frame, Lord. We don't need to know the time frame. All we need to do is to trust you where we are today. Trust you with everything that we have. You told us to trust you. You said, believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
you are thrilled when we trust and when we leave our futures in your care and in your hand. Uh, Father, whether we have a short time or whether we have a long time, it doesn't matter. What we would ask tonight as your men is that you would help us to live with wisdom. Give us wisdom for the remaining hours tonight. When we get up in the morning, would you give us wisdom again so that we can walk carefully, so that we can walk wisely, so that we can be men who are stable, men who are fighting off fear, men who are discovering peace, real peace that surpasses all comprehension, because we know you, and we are following the shepherd. These are the benefits in the present of knowing Christ. May we enjoy them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I imagine many of you guys are as excited about the release of the biography tomorrow of a man who has impacted your life as well as my life. Uh, there have been no books written about this man, yet I think it's safe to say that most of us in this room have benefited from his life and benefited from his expertise and benefited from his giftedness. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure if you have a Kindle, maybe you've already pre-ordered it, and tonight at midnight it'll show up at 12.01 a.m. on your Kindle. Um, I have the bio on my Kindle. I also ordered a copy because I know I'm going to want, want, want to mark it up. Uh, so I know you're excited about this uh, biography that's coming out, um, the story of Johnny Ive, and I know there's been a lot of buzz about it, and your friends have been talking about it, and you guys are looking at each other and going, who? Uh, Johnny Ive. You, you know. Johnny. Uh, J-O-N-Y. It's kind of an interesting spelling. Uh, I-V-E. You say, what the heck are you talking about? I've never heard of this guy, let alone has he had an impact in my life. Uh, have you got an iPhone? Or do you have an iPod? Right there. And I saw the volume was turned up on high, Dave, by the way. Uh, do you have uh, an iPad? Do you, uh, you say, yeah, what's that got to do anything? When Steve Jobs went back to Apple after his uh, hiatus. Uh, the company, as you know, the story was on its last legs and they brought him back in desperation. And one night, he was getting reacquainted with the company that he had been away from for several years. And uh, it was late at night and he walked into the design area and there was a guy there late, late, late at night and Jobs walked over and there were sketches everywhere and they began to have a conversation, and Steve Jobs realized that he had just met a genius. Uh, 
Johnny Ive. Uh, if you know anything about Jobs, he was a real stickler for design. But uh, he had an eye for design, but he couldn't do it himself. The guy who could do it, and the guy who designed it, and the guy who could pull it off was Johnny Ive. We all know about Steve Jobs. We don't know about Johnny Ive. Uh, it's interesting in life how God uses people. In your life, in my life. See, we have been talking uh, in this study, we've been talking about manna. Uh, manna is uh, what God gave them in the wilderness during that 40-year stretch of time, in between their leaving slavery in Egypt and their entrance into the promised land. There was a 40-year period. It's covered uh, in the book of Exodus, about a year is covered, and then the other 39 years are covered in the book of Numbers. And we have been looking at this period of time where they were in the wilderness, two million of them. How do you feed two million men, women, and kids? Because they're not in the city, they're not in the suburbs, uh, they're not at a ski resort in Colorado, uh, they're not at some nice hotel on some beach somewhere. They're in the wilderness, they're, they're in the middle of nowhere. All supply lines were cut off. Well, what do you do when all supply lines are cut off? How do you feed people? There are no Costco's, there are no Sam's, there's no refrigeration. God sent the manna. Every morning the manna was there supernaturally. Uh, that's in Exodus 16, God sends the manna. We've been studying this. Manna is a well-timed help. Manna is a well-timed provision that God sent when all supply lines were cut off. When they were out, and at the end of every day, they had gone through their supply of manna. Everybody was out. And if God didn't come through the next morning, they were finished. But God came through every day for 40 years. He never missed. Uh, that was the physical manna. We've discussed in here that in John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will never hunger that's not what he said. I got it wrong. I, I turned dyslexic there for a minute. He said, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And when you take a step back from that statement in John 6, 35, and you look at the entire Gospel of John, when he says he's the bread of life, he's talking about all of life because he's the creator of life. He owns life. He invented life. Uh, he originated life. In him was life. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He's God. He created. He spoke all things into existence. All things were created by Him and for Him and through Him. Hebrews 1.3 says, through the Son, through Jesus, the world was created. He spoke it into existence. And then it goes on in Hebrews 1.3 and says that He upholds all things by the Word of His power. It says in Colossians 1 that in Him all things hold together. He holds the world together. He is the glue of life. Why have we not destroyed ourselves in some kind of nuclear warfare where somebody starts pushing buttons? Why has that not happened? Because he has a plan for the ages and he won't let it happen. He restrains evil. He owns life. He controls life. He has a plan for life. He has a plan for the ages. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for my life. He is the glue of everything 
every level of life, every aspect of life. He is the provider of life. He is the manna of life. When you run out in any area of your life, he is the one who supplies a well-timed help. Whether it is physically, whether it is health-wise, whether it is emotionally, whether it is a relationship issue, he is the bread of life. He is the provider of life. He is the sustainer of life. He is God, and he is your God. Psalm 31, I will trust in you. I will say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. And he will get you there. He will get you there. He will sustain you and provide for you all the days of your life. Now, that's who he is. The manna was a physical provision of food. But in every area of your life, he is the one who shows up with what you need at the right time. Now, now oftentimes we go through life and we don't even realize that what, First Corinthians 4, I think it's verse 7, says, what have you, what do you have that you have not received? That's a fascinating verse. What, because basically, anything that you have, you've been given. The ability to think, the ability to reason, the ability to communicate, the ability to hold a job, uh, the ability to use your hands, the ability to interact with individuals, the ability to create, uh, the ability to problem solve. Where did you get this? What kind of work do you do? What are your skills? What are your gifts? What are your aptitudes? How about your kids? Isn't it interesting about our kids? They're all different. They all come out of the womb. Um, they're, they're different. Uh, you might get an extrovert, and the next one's an introvert. The extrovert never stops. They never stop talking. The introvert, they'll never talk. You got to pull it out of them. It's like pulling teeth to get them to talk and tell you what's in their heart. You see? Some, some of our kids are analytical. If you've got an analytical kid, the next one's not going to be analytical. They, 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 they don't even know where their shoes are. And they're 28 years old. We come out of the womb bent. You're bent a certain way. I'm bent a certain way. We are given certain gifts, but we're not given all the gifts. God gives certain gifts. He gives certain strengths, but he withholds certain gifts on purpose. That, what that means is, is that at some point in your life, you're going to find, and not at some point, at many points in your life, you're going to find yourself in need of something that you don't have because you haven't been given everything. This is why we need one another. Uh, there is such a thing, I believe, it's what I call relational manna. We touched on this a few weeks ago. I kind of want to dig into it tonight. There is such a thing as relational manna. I know you say, what, what is relational manna? Relational manna is in the providence of God. And, and you know, the, the term the providence of God, that's a doctrine in Scripture. Uh, we don't talk a lot about the providence of God in our day and age. Evangelical Christians tend not to discuss it a whole lot. It's starting to resurge, though, which is a great thing. 
Because the providence of God is one of the most reassuring doctrines in all the world. What it means is that not only has he given you life, but he is involved in every detail of your life. There are no accidents. There's no chance. There's no karma. He's involved. In, we've often heard the statement, the devil is in the details. That is absolutely wrong. God is in the details. You ever heard of DNA? It's what you call details. He's all over it. He invented it. He created it. Um, he's involved in the details of your life and your existence on every single level of life. Um, and he has made us so that in and of ourselves, we don't have what we need. So at certain points in your life, on different levels of your life, and this will be interesting because tonight what I want to invite you to do is to look back over your life and ponder how it is that God at certain points in your life has brought in key people into your life to provide for you a well-timed help when you were on empty, when your supply line was cut off. You needed, you needed a perspective, you needed a gifting, and you didn't have it. So what did God do? He brought someone else along. He had given them that gift. He had given them that perspective that you needed. And in the providence of God, as he weaves your life and the life of others, he, we, we have these coincidences. They're not coincidences. They're providence. Providence, the word providence, and then let's go back, our studies manna. Manna was a well-timed provision of God. Providence and provision come from the same root. It's, it's a provision of God at the right time. Uh, you wouldn't be where you are in your life if some key people, if some right people had not come along in your life at the right time and helped you and supplied you and encouraged you. What I'm saying is that's relational manna. Jim Collins wrote a book back in, was it 2003? 2001, called Good to Great. It's a business book. Subtitle is Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. What leap? The leap from good to great. It's a business book. It's a technical book. It's well written. It came out in 2001. If I'm not mistaken, it's been a top 10 bestseller since 2001. That's how good it is. This is a tremendous book. To my knowledge, I don't believe that the author is an evangelical Christian, but as I understand it, I would see his name come up from time to time at different Christian conferences, leadership conferences. He'd be invited to speak. Why was that? Well, when you start looking at his book, and he did an analysis of certain companies who made the leap from being good companies to being great companies, he came up with some principles, just observation. Now, what's interesting is he has kind of six key principles that he introduces in the front of the book that 
are the principles that he discovered that are the steps that must be taken for a company business book to go from good to great. By my understanding, as I look at this and as I've read this book, those six principles, five of them are biblical principles. Now, what's interesting as he would look at these different companies, they were working off biblical principles and many of them didn't even know it. The first one that he mentions in terms of the um, the components of going from good to great, the first thing they observed in these companies is what he would call level five leadership. Uh, I could read you all the stuff on level five leadership, but can I basically tell you this? When you read it, it's what Jesus said a leader ought to be. If you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. A level five leader is a guy who's not in it for himself. He's not in it to make a name for himself. He's not in it to get famous or to see how much he can grab for himself. He's in it to serve and to accomplish something in tandem with other folks. He's not looking out for number one. He's looking out for others and he's trying to achieve something and he's looking to form a team of people who are looking out for one another. It's really fascinating. And then at a certain point in the book, Collins talks about how so many of these level five leaders that he ran into were evangelical Christians who believed the Bible. That is kind of interesting, isn't it? The, the second thing he has in terms of the six steps of going from good to great, he has this principle he calls first who, then what? This is wild. I'm going to read this to you. He said, we expected that good to great leaders would begin by setting a new vision and strategy. All right, now think about this. So you got a company that's, that's good. All right, well, we want to go to great. So you would think, all right, this guy who's ever in charge, he's going to come up with a new vision, a new strategy. That's exactly what the guy didn't do. So what does he do? Listen to this. We found instead that they first got the right people on the bus, got the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats. That's profound. Let me read that again. We expected the good to great leaders would begin by setting a new vision and strategy. We found instead that they first got the right people on the bus, they got the wrong people off the bus, and then they got the right people in the right seats, and then they figured out where to drive the bus. That's brilliant. Let's get everybody rowing in the same direction. Let's get everybody with the same values. Let's get everybody with the same motivations. Let's get everybody with the same character. Let's get everybody rowing in the right direction, and let's get everybody in the right seat, in the right place, now, where are we going? We don't have a clue. But you give me the right people with the right motivations, and I bet you we can figure out where we ought to go. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. There's some great principles. Uh, his next one is confront the brutal facts. And uh, in parentheses, he says, yet never lose faith. Gosh, I think that uh, is in the Bible somewhere. 
It just cracks me up. All this stuff, it's... He's got later in here a culture of discipline. Discipline. The word discipline has the same root as the word disciple. Okay. Um, When Johnny Ive came up with the uh, iPhone, and you know, they keep... uh, not doing design, but they keep messing around with the software. Uh, they just did this new, um, what do you call this, upgrade? This, the, the new thing, do you want to download Upchuck, whatever it's called? <laughs> Is it now I, uh, 7? I, I, iOS 7, I don't even know what you call it. And now I've got to unlock my phone. I'm just having a lot of trouble with it. But um, I'm a little hacked off about it, to be real honest with you. <laughs> Uh, a little frustrated, you, you can sense that, but one of the things about that iPhone, and whoever would have thought this, you know, we're, uh, we take pictures with our phone. Come on. We, we take video with our phone. We used to carry pictures in our wallet. You don't need to do that anymore. You got thousands of pictures in your phone. Is that not wild? And so what we do is, you'll be telling somebody about, say, oh, I got a picture, what do you do? You pull out your phone, and, you, and, then, and then you say, oh, oh yeah, look at this. And then you go, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Uh, You can scroll through your iPhone and see the pictures. What I want to do tonight as we start, I want to scroll through, first of all, Exodus 17 and then Exodus 18. Those are the, we're going to, we're going to look at two snapshots that will demonstrate to you the truth of relational manna. God bringing along the right people at the right time We're going to see it in Exodus 17 and 18 in Moses, two different occurrences. And then we're going to scroll through some more in the Bible and find a couple other snapshots where God did this for other people. And then we're going to get a sense that you see for what God has for you and your leadership, your responsibilities, you've already seen seen him bring right people at certain times. And, you know, he'll continue to do that in in the future Because you see what that is, it's a well-timed help and it's a well-timed provision. Um, Let's start, if you would, at Exodus 17. And and I'm not going to comment a lot around the situations. I just want to, I want us to just look at the snapshot. Um, What's happened here in Exodus 17, they've come out of the Red Sea in 14 um, what happens is in 15, they give thanks to God for getting them through the Red Sea. Then towards the end of 15, they're out of water. God provides water. It's another miraculous provision. It's a well-timed help. Then you get into 16, God sends the manna. It's another well-timed provision. It's another well-timed help. Um, You get into chapter 17. Once again, they're out of water. Here's another well-timed help for two million people. 
another provision of God. They're out, supply lines. What does God do? Um, he brings water out of a rock. Rocks don't contain water. That's not a problem for God. The arm of the Lord is not too short that it cannot save. God can bring what you need out of anything. Or you look around and you say, I'm in deadness of means, as the old Puritans used to say. Deadness of means, what does that mean? It means you're out. You're out of cash. You're, you're out of contacts. You're out of your good old boy network. You're just out. You're tapped out. Well, then what do you need? You need help and you need a well-timed help. Doesn't matter what it is. Water, job, uh, doesn't matter what it is. The right doctor, doesn't matter what it is. Oh, you found the right doctor, but he's not taking any appointments. That is not a problem for Almighty God. How many of you guys have ever gotten in to see a doctor who was not taking any appointments, but he took you? Has that ever happened to anybody? Let me see your hands. I see at least 30 hands in here. Okay. You know what that is? That's manna. That's a provision of God. Some of the providences of God are what I call stealth providences. Where they just happen and we just go, gosh, isn't that... There's a guy in here, there's a CEO in here that uh, he interviewed and the guy said, I've just had a real lucky life. Lucky? Yeah, I went to an Ivy League school and then, you know, the war broke out, World War II, and a friend of mine who had been ahead of me at school, uh, I was supposed to be, you know, on this ship and I had orders to get on this ship and cross the Atlantic, but my friend worked it so that I didn't get on the ship. I wound up going to D.C. and getting in the uh, diplomatic corps or whatever the heck it was, and that ship went down at sea and all men were lost, but I didn't go down because I wasn't on it. And then as a result of me to D.C., and then I went on to graduate school and I built this company. I've just had a real lucky life. No, that's stealth providence in the lives of believers and unbelievers. It's called common grace. There's no luck about it. It's the goodness of God. It's the mercy of God. Um, Exodus 17, after the water in the rock, they have their first battle. Verse 8, then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua. Now Joshua is a young guy. He's a protege of Moses. Now see, one day Joshua is going to be the leader of the nation. But that's way down the road. That's way down the road. Like 40 years down the road. But he's already in relationship with Moses. You see? So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, his brother, and her, who was her? Her apparently was an associate and assistant to Aaron. Okay? Not a lot in the Bible about her. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So Joshua's going to fight the battle, but Moses and Aaron and Hur are on top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. This is interesting. As long as Moses has his hands up, Israel's winning the battle. 
But when he drops his hands, now they're, now, now they're in trouble. So what does he need to do? He's got to keep his hands up. That's what you call pressure. That's what you call responsibility. That's what you call a lot of people depending on you to perform. And you know what? That's where a lot of you guys are. You got people counting on you. You got people looking to you. You got people um, whose well-being and livelihoods, livelihoods depend upon you. Uh, you're in a place of responsibility. And what happens is after a while, we get fatigued and we get worn out. Why? Because we're just men with limited strength and limited abilities. Look how this works. Verse 12, but Moses' hands were heavy. See how long you can raise your hands and keep them up. Yeah, after a while, that gets a little wearisome. Moses' hands were heavy. They took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. Now watch this. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. Uh, I mean, is this not interesting? What, what, why, why, did, why did God do it this way? I don't know. Don't waste your time trying to figure out why God did it this way. His ways are not our ways. There are some things that are beyond our ability to understand or comprehend. So don't even, don't even try. It's what God said. This is how we're going to do this. So you just get on the bus and obey. Keep your hands up. As long as your hands are up, you guys win. As long as they're down, the other guys win. So you got to keep them up. No man can do that by himself. So what happens? He's got two guys that come alongside. And what do they do? They're holding up his arms. That's called in my opinion, relational manna. You've only got so much strength. You've only got so much energy. You only have so much capability. And then there's a point you start getting fatigued. You start getting worn out. The pressure starts getting to you. Um, there, there are times you get so fatigued, you, you, you want to quit because you're just tired of being tired. Now, it's in times like that, if you look back over your life, that God will bring along in your life an Aaron and a Her to help you. And figuratively, to help hold your hands up so that you can fulfill the responsibility that God has placed on your plate. Have you ever seen him do that? Yeah, you have. But maybe you've just never viewed it as a gift from God. You say, well, they weren't believers. They don't have to be believers. God can use anybody. Anybody. He used Cyrus to take his people out of the Babylonian captivity and send them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And Cyrus was told by God, you're going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to have favor on my people, even though you don't know me. And God declared twice that Cyrus didn't know him. By the way, God said this would happen 150 years before Cyrus was born. So in your life, God can bring along the right person. They may know Christ. They may not know Christ. But they are tools in the hands of God to accomplish what he wants to do in your life. He'll bring someone else with different gifting. Um, turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because you see, we don't have... Here's the thing. We're all needy. We, we don't have all the gifts. We don't have all the skills. There are different instruments that you can take 
to help determine what your skill set is, what your strengths are, what your aptitudes are. There's, there are books out like Strength Finders. You know, you can take these little questionnaires. Um, you say, what is that? You know, like a personality test. Oh, they, oh, no, it's not an intelligence test. It's not a personality test. See, they tell you that because you may take a personality test and fail. Uh, that happened to me. It's kind of devastating uh, to find out you have no personality. Anyway, it's, I'm, 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 I'm in counseling over it. I'm working it through. But, and, and truly, it's not a personality thing, but it's, it's, it's an instrument to evaluate how you've been hardwired. So you can do the strength finders thing or the, uh, the disc test, test instrument, which, man, I've used for you. It's tremendous. It really helps you get a, a grip on who you are and how you're put together, how your wife's put together, how your kids are put together. Um, and then when you understand how you're put together and she's put together and your kids are put together, this is potential areas of conflict. Because if you get a guy like this with someone like this, see, usually they got to rub here. And then, but if you know it, you can figure it out and work through it. Anyway. Because um, we're all different. Uh, you know, and, and say like strength finder. I want to know my strengths. And so you can look at that book, Strength Finders. Here are your strengths. Here. See, I think you ought to take a step back and say, all right, this is great. I've got this, these strengths. I've got these gifts. All right. And this is what they don't ever do. But you ought to ask this question. Where the heck did you get the strengths? Where did they come from? And it goes back to 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just real quick, talking about the body of Christ and the fact that every believer is given gifts, spiritual gifts by God. I, I, I just want to show you this, this general concept in the body of Christ. And, and quite frankly, it works not only in the body, it works in all of life. This is how God runs the world. You'd have spiritual gifts, and you'd have natural gifts. If you look at verse 4 of 12 of 1 Corinthians, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Six, there are a variety of effects, varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Uh, if you look at verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So if you just were to study 12 and 13 and 14, you find there are different gifts. If you read Ephesians 4, it says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the body. Uh, there are different gifts in the body of Christ. The apostles were with Christ. They were called personally by Christ. We don't have apostles anymore. Some churches say, well, we have apostles. Well, we've got apostles too. We've got the 12 apostles, you see. But you had to be hand-chosen by Christ to be an apostle. Uh, prophets, pastors, and teachers. Those are different nuances of gifts. They have different functions in the body. Uh, 14. For the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, is it is it not for this reason any the less a part of the body? What, what he's saying is the ear can't look at the eye and say it's not important. He, he's, he's, he's drawing a conclusion here. Uh, I don't have all the gifts. You don't have all the gifts. So at key times in my life, I'm going to need other people who have gifts 
to supply me what I'm missing in my life in order for me to accomplish the work that God has called for me to do. Um, See, this is relational. Flip with me, if you would. Let's let's, uh, look at another snapshot. I want to show you how this worked, not only with Moses in battle. Uh, The first relational mantle we see is Joshua's fighting. He's the general. Aaron and Hur are supporting him. Go to Exodus 18. Now here it comes from his father-in-law, a man named Jethro, who was a priest of Midian. Uh, They were not followers of Yahweh, but apparently his father-in-law becomes a follower of the one true God. And what happens is his father-in-law shows up with his wife, Moses' wife, and his two kids. Apparently when he went in to confront Pharaoh, he didn't take his wife and kids with him. They were at the father-in-law. And so now they're reunited. And so in 18, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses. I'm in Exodus 18. And for his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So he shows up with the wife and the kids, and they get reacquainted and all this. Moses is telling him all that God has done. It's just incredible. Verse 11, his father-in-law Jethro says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. He's talking about how great God is in delivering Israel. Um, Now watch this. It came about in 13. It came about the next day that Moses set to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now you think about this. From early in the morning until late at night, Moses would sit down, and these two million people would bring their issues, their complaints, their lawsuits, their arguments, their difficulties, their, uh, hey, I loaned him this, he wouldn't pay. He would handle this stuff from early in the morning until late at night. That's what the guy did every day when they were camped. Right, now watch this. 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw that all he was doing for the people, he says, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out. Was that not true? Absolutely. See, it strikes me that here comes his father-in-law and his father has some type of giftedness in the area of administration, which Moses didn't have. Moses was a great leader. And you see, he's a responsible guy and he's taking it on and he's doing what he needs to do. But along comes Jethro and says, hey, you know what? There's a better way of doing this. And what he does is with his skill set and with his gifts, he comes along gives Moses a plan that eventually was adopted by the military of Israel. Uh, What does he say? He says, you'll surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you. The task is too heavy. You can't do this alone. Verse 18. And then what he does is, he says in 21, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. He says, you want to find men of character. This equates with the New Testament principles of choosing a leader in 1 Timothy 3. You don't look at their net worth. You look at their character. You look at what's internal. And then what you do, you place them over as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. 
He gives him a plan on how to be more effective in his leadership that Moses never came up with. Why? Because Moses apparently didn't have those administrative gifts. So God sends someone else along who has the gifts so that Moses doesn't wear out. It was relational manna. Verse 23, if you do this thing and God so commands you, I like that. Kick this around, pray about it, test it, and see if the Lord's in it. And if he does, then you'll be able to endure and all these people will go to their place in peace. Have you ever had someone give you a piece of information about your work that enabled you to work more strategically and to use your time more effectively? That's stealth manna. That's a stealth providence. Uh, Peter Drucker wrote a book called The Effective Executive. I've read that so many times. You know what that is? That's stealth providence as far as I'm concerned. He just cuts through the fog. He just cuts through the confusion. He says the most important thing a leader ever does is to figure out how he best should use his time. Everybody wants your time as a leader. Everybody's, they want this, they want this. Hey, can you, you'll, you'll go nuts because everybody's got an agenda. You can't work off everybody else's agenda. What you got to figure out is what has God called me to do? What are my responsibilities? I can't afford to be a floodlight. I need to be a laser beam. The older I get, the more I work on being a laser beam instead of a floodlight. A floodlight is light spread out everywhere. It's not all that effective, except you can see a little bit. But you take light and you focus it, and you harness it, and you concentrate it, and it is staggering what you can do with focused, concentrated light. Is it not? So as I get older, I am very interested in becoming more and more of a laser beam. And when I say that, I want to do what I know in my life and heart that God has called me to do. And if I'm not called to it, I'm not doing it. I want to stay on task. I want to stay on target. I'm called to know the Lord. I'm called to know his word. I'm called to love my wife. I'm called to be in relationship with my kids. I'm already at what, four or five things? Oh, I got to provide for them. That's six. I'm going to be honest with you. That's about my max. That's pretty much it for me. But yet I'm always, as you are, being, hey, can you do this and can you do this? Or this is really a good thing. Can you do this and can you do this and can you do this? I was at a men's conference years ago and a bunch of guys and the guy before me got up and he had this grandiose scheme and we're going to take, we're going to go reach a million people and we want to take a bunch of guys and we want to take you on these mission trips and we want to do this and all this. And he went on for about 45 minutes and kind of put kind of a guilt thing on guys. I want you to join us. If we all pull together, we can go do. And, and you know, I'm in the back room and I'm listening. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of feeling guilty. So I got up and I was doing my talk and I said, oh, by the way, we just heard a great presentation. You know, it could be God doesn't want you to do that. <laughs> now, he may want you to, but then again, he may not. What do you need to do? You need to inquire of the Lord. You need to look at the responsibilities he has clearly given you and called you to and determine probably with your wife and maybe a friend or two, how well am I doing? If I go do this, can I afford to add this? Am I being called to this? If you're not, don't do it. Do what he has called you to do.
and some things he very clearly has called you to do. If indeed you're feeling a tug and those around you, your counselors say, yeah, that's a good thing, then go do it. But if you don't have that, don't do it. And afterwards, the guy was all over me. He goes, Steve, man, man. I said, yeah, man. I said, you just want those guys going? I said, I know you better than that. You want them just going so you can say you got X amount of guys going? You don't want that. I mean, I know you. You don't want that, do you? I mean, it'd be kind of exciting. But, you know, you only want, you only want them if God's calling them, right? He goes, yeah. Hey, man, we're good. And we were. You see? Don't get guilted into something. Don't do it unless you're called. And if you're called, do it with all your might. Be a laser beam. What, what, what uh, Jethro is doing, and this guy Jethro was named after Jethro of the Beverly Hillbillies. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> it, it's in the Hebrew text. It's just something you don't get in the English. Just thought I'd throw it in. No charge for that. But see, what was Jethro doing? He was helping Moses be a lady. Hey, you're going to wear yourself out, man. You shouldn't be doing it. There are other people. You find capable, competent guys, and here's your strategy. You can put in this, 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 boom. Now, you know what? I appreciate that because that's something I don't know how to do. But I got a couple of guys in my life right now who come alongside of me and said, hey, Steve, could I possibly help you with this? And you know what? I'm just kind of watching it happen. Because they're gifted differently than I am. I don't know how to do it, but they know how to do it. Now, am I calling up and saying, you need to do this and this? Why would I tell them how to do it? I don't know how to do it in the first place. But they're godly men. They're holding my arms up. They're helping me do the work God's called me to do, and it's their, it's their sweet spot. This is how it's supposed to work. Is this making any sense? So when God sends them along, don't try to control them. Give your input, talk, but don't try to control it. You're not the Holy Spirit. You're not even the junior Holy Spirit. Let the Lord work. Listen to good counsel. Uh, flip over to, uh, to the right. Let me show you this real quick. In, uh, see, this is about relationships. It's relational manner. Go to 2 Samuel 17, verse 27. I've got to do this fast. What's happening is, in David's life, this is a horrific time. His son Absalom has rebelled against him, uh, is trying to seize the kingdom from him, and has almost done it. David has to flee for his life from Jerusalem basically leaves with the clothes on his back. And as he is leaving and escaping his son, who has won the hearts of the people, in 1727, if you pick up at the end of verse 27, it lists a bunch of people. And then it says, And Barzillai the Gileadite from Rojalim, watch this, brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. David is in a crisis. He's running with the clothes on his back. And Barzillai and some other men show up and just say, what we've got is yours. We're for you. We're behind you 100%. You know what that was? That was a well-timed help. I'm not going to take the time to read this, 
But then you can turn to 2 Samuel 19, verses 31 through 39. And David, as he's going back into the city now, because his son has been taken care of and he's going back to take his throne back, he has this long conversation with Barzillai, a godly man who's 80 years old and a friend of David. And they have this relationship and, and David is bending over backwards. What can I do? He is so thankful for the help that Barzillai said, anything I've got is yours. I mean, Barzillai came through relationally for David when David was absolutely cut off from all supply lines. And David never forgot it. If you note 1 Kings 2, 7, when David is dying, he says to his son Solomon, don't forget the household of Barzillai to bless them. Why? Because he came through for me when I was stripped of everything. He never forgot Barzillai. I'll go to 2 Corinthians 1.8. Here's another snapshot of relational manna. Uh, if you're a male, at some point in your life, you're going to deal with depression. That may say, I've never dealt with depression. Well, give yourself some time. At some, this happens to guys. Never been depressed in their life, and then wake up one morning, and boom. It's like you got hit with a Mack truck. You don't even know what happened to you. Happens all the time to guys. Uh, it happened to Paul. It happened to me in my early 30s. Uh, it happened to Tommy Nelson right around 58, 59. This happens all the time to guys. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 1.8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Watch this. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. That's what you call depressed. This is the Apostle Paul. He's burdened excessively Beyond his strength, he despaired even of life. If it was up to him, he'd die. He'd check out. This guy is depressed. Look at verse 8 of chapter 4. He says, we are afflicted in every way. I'm watching three guys. I've mentioned this before this semester. Three guys that I know that are walking with the Lord. Pretty much on every front, they're getting hammered. Uh, they relate to this verse. We're afflicted in every way. Is this the way life always is? No, but sometimes you go through seasons like this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. <clears throat> We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. Flip over to verse 5 of chapter 7. Chapter 7. Paul says, even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side. Watch this. Conflicts without, fears within. Uh, that's, that happens a lot to guys. We got external conflicts. Man, who wants those? Nobody. But you got them. Oh, and you know what you got? You got fears within. How the heck am I going to manage this? How am I going to get through this? How is this going to work? This is, this is what happens in the Christian life. It's not an easy life. It's a hard life. Conflicts without, fears within. Watch this. But God, who comforts the depressed. Now watch this. Watch the relational man coming. Comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus showed up. See, here's what happens. At key times in your life, God will bring along on your bus the right person. The right person. Not just any person. Something else I got to read in here that I didn't read. This is really good because Colin says this. 
We found instead that they first got the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, giving you context, and the right people in the right seats, and then they figured out where to drive it. Watch this. The old adage, people are your most important asset, turns out to be wrong. People are not your most important asset. The right people are your most important asset. You know what happened to Paul here? God sent along the right person. When the right person comes along, that's relational manner. Not just anybody, but the right person at the right time, with the right word, with the right encouragement. The way you know you're getting emotional, uh, when you're, you're getting relational manna is when someone comes along in your life, and here's what happens. They encourage instead of discourage you. Um, I just put these thoughts together this afternoon because I thought back to different guys God has used in my life. And when they have come into my life and impacted me at a key time in my life, what happened was I was encouraged when I was discouraged. Something else that happens, I'm energized instead of drained. When I interact with them, there's a guy in this room, and we had a meeting a while back for a couple hours, and he knows kind of how I'm wired. He said, you okay? You doing all right with this? And I said, yeah, I'm actually energized. Why? I was energized because of his gifts and his holding up my hands and helping me. I, it, didn't, it didn't drain me. It didn't fatigue me. Most meetings fatigue me. That's why I never write them down. I miss them. It's a joke. Wouldn't that be nice if you could get away with that? Meetings are exhausting. But man, when you're meeting with the right person in the right time with the right word, it's not draining, it's energizing. When it's the right person at the right time, you're affirmed and you don't feel constantly critiqued. But then again, They'll give you constructive criticism and you can take it because you know their hearts. You know their motive. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. When it's the right person at the right time, you've got clarity instead of confusion. You ever had this happen to you? They help you work through the fog. Uh, they might provide instruction when you think you're on the verge of destruction. It's just manna. It's a well-timed help. Um, God does this in his providence. Uh, years ago, I remember reading a biography of a missionary couple, and they were in what was then known as the Belgian Congo, in the bush. And they had gone, this young couple had gone, the wife was pregnant, they had gone out, and they were in this remote mission station, and uh, she gave birth, and uh, right around, oh, the baby was 12 months old, the baby died. And just crushed them, broke their hearts. They went back to the States on furlough. She consulted with a couple of doctors, and they said, when you go back, and if you're going to get pregnant again, um, this is not unusual in these kinds of countries. What you would need is a supply. As that baby is able to take food, you're going to need to feed that baby a certain amount of oatmeal and prunes every day. So when they went back, she got a supply and took it with her. And sure enough, got back and she was pregnant. Well, one of the other ladies uh, in the Congo, another missionary wife, came and saw her and she had a little infant. 
And this infant was showing the signs that her first baby had. And she said, I talked to the doctors, and this is what they told me. That baby needs oatmeal and prunes. And she took her supply and gave it to that other missionary mom. And uh, that baby turned around and was saved. Uh, Time went by. She delivers her baby. Months go by. And now her baby starts showing the same symptoms. Uh, she was talking with the other mission wife, and this mission wife said, I can't believe you didn't have the foresight to bring oatmeal and prunes. And it, it cut her. It cut her spirit because she did have the foresight and gave it to this woman. And the woman left, and she went into the back room and just sobbed and wept and poured out her heart to the Lord. Lord, I tried to do what I was told to do. My baby is going to die. I'm in the middle of Africa here. And she's just pouring out her heart to the Lord. She hears a vehicle. Her husband says, honey, I need you to come out. And here is a, a huge industrial truck. Uh, there are two Belgian miners from a, a mine about 60 miles away. They would come over from time to time, and they came to talk with her husband. One of the young miners had been in an accident, had died. They were asking if he could come in the next couple of days and conduct a memorial service, and he said he would be glad to, and they made the arrangements. Thank you, she greeted them. They got in the truck and drove off, went about 100 yards, and the truck stopped. They put in reverse and backed up, rolled down the window, and her and her husband are waiting. And one of the men said, ma'am, excuse me, um, we get shipments every month from Belgium, all kinds of provisions. And for some reason, every month, they send us tins that none of the guys want. They send us tins of oatmeal, and they send us tins of what? Would you be interested in those? We could get them to you every month. Isn't that something? You say, that's unbelievable. Not if you believe in the providence of God, it isn't. Doesn't matter where you are. See, it's about relationship. It was about relation. Her husband had established a relationship. When they were in need, they knew here was a man who believed the gospel and would come and handle a service for a young man in an honoring way. They, they came out of their way, and then, oh, 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 gosh, it just entered their mind. That's the providence of God. That's relational manna. I remember when I was wanting to go to Dallas Seminary, and back then there was a waiting list in the early 70s I was told there's a waiting list of 800 guys. They didn't have any of the new buildings. And uh, I really wanted to go there. And I was working and worked for a year, year and a half. Uh, couldn't seem to break through. My grades hadn't been that good in college. Uh, I wasn't interested in college. I was just kind of horsing around. And um, I remember meeting with Dr. Ryrie. And I thought if I could just meet with him, he would be impressed with my personality. And he would let me in. That's a true story. 
So I met with him at Mount Hermon Conference Center, and he was about impressed with me as he was with the wallpaper. And, uh, but he did say this to me. He said, Steve, there's a, have you ever heard of Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon? And I said, no. He said, well, that's really a fine school, and they built a new academic center. They've got room for students. Most of the profs are from our institution. You might want to check that out. Maybe go for a year and transfer in. Well, I was so disappointed. I actually, and I, I wound up going there. And I remember being so disappointed. I didn't know anybody up there. I'd never heard of the school. I just drove up there. I thought, I'll take some classes, get my grades up, and then transfer in. You know, um, that was relational manna for me in the midst of my disappointment because I went up there, and the first day I was there, uh, I walked into a senior church history class. I was a first-year guy. But I was late getting there, and... uh, was accepted late, and so didn't get in the regular first-year classes. So I'm sitting in a church history class, senior church history class, next to a guy named Stu Weber. Uh, Stu was a former Green Beret captain, special forces guy, married, a couple little guys. I'm a single guy. That's the first guy I sat down to next to at Western Seminary. I didn't know Stu and I had become close friends. I didn't know that we would do scores of men's conferences together in the future. I didn't know that. I didn't know I'd do a book called Point Man. He'd do a book called Tender Warrior, complimentary books. We've spoken together so many times, and and, and that's a lifelong relationship that came out of that. I didn't know that. All I knew, I was disappointed going up there. Uh, I met another guy. in fact, uh, he helped me with some of my Greek grammar. I'd go over to his house and go over to Bobby's house and his wife Pam, and, and we'd work on grammar together. And, and, and we played a lot of football. We played a lot of flag football on Saturdays. And Bobby would always oversee the games. He brought the flags. He, he, he set up the park. He, and we had, all, we had some guys who were pretty good ball players from college. And they were pretty intense games. And, and the thing about Bobby, he controlled everything because he wanted to be quarterback. And uh, I remember going out for passes, and I knew, I mean, you better be open fast, because if you didn't get, I, I mean, he just, all he wanted to do was run the ball. He used to tick me off. <laughs> Great guy. He and his wife went to the Philippines. Um, Bobby Tebow. What is his name? We lost track of each other for a long, long time. And I remember, well, I don't know how long ago it was, I was watching ESPN one night, and there was this freshman quarterback at University of Florida. <laughs> and this kid's name was Timmy Tebow. I went, Tebow? Tebow? And Bobby had gone to Florida. And I thought, that's got to be Timmy. That's got to be Bobby's kid. And I wonder if that is. Or maybe it's his nephew or something. I don't know. Maybe. And then on this highlight reel, I saw Timmy go back to pass, and then he ran. I said, that's Bobby's kid. That has to be Bobby's kid. It's in the genetics. Oh, we became good friends up there, and I didn't even want to go there. Oh, and then I met my wife, Mary, up there. And providence of God. And see, the disappointment in my life led to some of the greatest blessings in my life. I see that as relational manna, right people, right time. 
I've got one minute and 11 seconds left. <clears throat> Thanksgiving's coming up. It, guys, here's my question to you. As, as we're doing this thing, and, and this is a little bit off the wall, but what I'm trying to do is get you to think about the goodness of God in your life and how he supplies you in your life at every juncture of your life, sometimes in ways we don't even recognize is coming from his hand. What's happened to you is not luck, it's the providence of God. If a right person has shown up at the right time and assisted you and helped you when you were out of what you needed, that is the manna and provision of God. Thanksgiving's coming up. We mock Thanksgiving in this country. We mock the story of the founders and the pilgrims. There is a remarkable book called The Light and the Glory written by Peter Marshall, came out in 1977. An incredibly precisely researched and well-documented book from a historical standpoint. They talk about the pilgrims landing, the journey about, it killed half the pilgrims, as they found this cleared land, and they couldn't figure out why it was cleared and nobody was around. Uh, they start, it was winter, and they started dropping like flies. Sometimes two and three a day would die. And they got into March. They barely survived the winter. They had no provisions for food. And just as the first grass was springing up, one day a tall, muscular Indian shows up in a loincloth, walks in. They're just kind of frozen by the guy. He walks in and in perfect English says, Do you have any beer? That's what he said. His name was Massasoit. He was an Indian chief from up north. He had heard that they were there. He came down. Uh, he had been taken to England by some captains. He had, been, had met the royal family. He had learned English. He had become a Christian. He uh, liked the English beer. They didn't have any. They had something else. He drank that. Uh, he spent some time with him, went back to his tribe. Uh, a few weeks later, another Indian from another tribe showed up to Massasoit's tribe. Uh, he, too, had gone to England. He had been at the king's court, had learned English, had come back home, but had been shanghaied, had been sold into slavery in Spain, through a remarkable providence, heard the gospel, became a Christian, broke free, had been away nine years, came back to find his wife and child and tribe, only to find they had been completely wiped out by a plague. And he went into such despair that he found his way over to the tribe of Massasoit. And he ministered to this young man who had had such great grief and one day said, you know that land that your people cleared? There are some Englishmen living there who are dying. And there was a glint in this young Indian's eye. His name was Squanto. And he said, I would like to meet these people. Massasoit takes Squanto to meet these pilgrims who are almost ready to die of starvation. I pick up the story here. When Massasoit and his entourage left, Squanto stayed. 
This is historical fact. Okay? Squanto had found his reason for living. These English were like little babes, so ignorant were they of the ways of the wild. Well, he could certainly do something about that. The next day he went out and came back with all the eels he could hold in his hands. And these people were starving. Eels, which the pilgrims found to be fat and sweet and excellent eating. How had he ever caught them? He took several young men with him and taught them how to squash the eels out of the mud with their bare feet and then catch them with their hands. That was a provision they never would have known about that was right under their noses. And if he hadn't shown up, they would have died. The next thing he showed them was by far the most important, for it would save every one of their lives. April was corn planting month in New England as well as Virginia. Squanto showed the pilgrims how to plant corn the Indian way, hoeing six-foot squares in towards the center, putting down four or five kernels, and then fertilizing the corn with fish. At that, the pilgrims just shook their heads. In four months, they had caught exactly one cod. No matter, said Squanto cheerfully, in four days, the creek will be overflowing with fish. In four days. They cast a doubtful uh, eye on their amazing friend who seemed to have adopted them. But Squanto ignored them and instructed the young men in how to make the baskets they would need to catch the fish. Obediently, the men did as he told them, and four days later, the creeks for miles were clogged with fish making their spring run. The pilgrims did not catch them, they harvested them. So now the corn was planted. Pointing spoke-like to the center of each mound were three fishes, their heads almost touching. Now, said Squanto, they would have to guard against wolves. Seeing the familiar, bewildered look on his charges' faces, he added that the wolves would attempt to steal the fish. The pilgrims would have to guard it for two weeks until it had a chance to decompose. And so they did, and that summer, 20 full acres of corn began to flourish. Squanto helped in a thousand similar ways, teaching them how to stalk deer, plant pumpkins among the corn, refine maple syrup from maple trees, things they knew nothing about, discern which herbs were good to eat and good for medicine and find the best berries. But after the corn, there was one other specific thing he did, which was of inestimable importance to their survival. What little fishing they had done was a failure, for any plan for them to fish commercially was a certain fiasco. So Squanto introduced them to the pelt of the beaver, which was then in plentiful supply in northern New England and in great demand throughout Europe. Not only did he get them started, but he guided them through in the trading, making sure they got their full money's worth and top quality pelts. This would prove to be their economic deliverance, just as corn would be their physical deliverance. Squanto was a well-timed provision and a well-timed help, and it was all about relationships. And that's how they survived. And if you read their journals, they gave thanks to him, and they called him Joseph because he saved them as Joseph saved his brothers in famine. That is the providence of God. And you have seen it in your life, and you will see it again because Jesus is the bread of life, all of life. We thank you, Father, for your greatness and for your provision and for your care on every level of our lives. How thankful we are for your provision. Great is thy faithfulness. For the men who are discouraged because they are out of means. They are out of 
cash. They are out of contacts. They feel obscure. They feel their best days are behind them. They feel isolated. May you show them your goodness and give them a well-timed help. Put the right person on their bus and get the wrong person off. Only you, who are the one true God, can do such a thing in such a way that we will know it's from your hand. We honor you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.